Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Countdown, Mother Jones Radio, Rachel Maddow, NPR, Tom Hartman, and Radio Nation. of evidence tonight that the neoconservatives inside the Bush administration who engineered the U.S. invasion of Iraq might now be setting their sights on Iran, the fight between Hezbollah and Israel serving as a conduit. Sidney Blumenthal reporting on Salon.com that with the president's approval, the National Security Agency, the NSA, is secretly providing intelligence to Israel to monitor whether Syria and Iran are supplying new armaments to Hezbollah as it fires Katusha missiles, missiles and other vehicles into northern Israel. At the at the same time, Salon reports, hardliners in the administration believe Secretary of State Rice is not doing enough to push the neoconservative agenda. Joining me now to discuss that revelation is James Bamford, an expert on the U.S. intelligence community and the author of groundbreaking books on the NSA called Body of Secrets and the Puzzle Palace. He now has an article on the prospect of war in Iran in the current issue of Rolling Stone magazine. Mr. Bamford, thank you for your time tonight. No, my pleasure, Keith. Is the passing of secret intelligence to Israel with the approval of the president a, a clear sign that the administration might be looking to widen the conflict in the Middle East instead of trying to contain it now? Well, it's not just uh, intelligence. If you uh, remember last week, there was a, a major report about how the U.S. was uh, rushing uh, sophisticated weapons to Israel for use in the in the war. So it's clear that the U.S., uh, particularly the Pentagon, is is pushing hard uh, on on behalf of Israel in this war. Is it uh, Condoleezza Rice herself that the neoconservatives view as a threat? Are they Colin Powelling her, or or would anyone holding the post of Secretary of State? Proof threatening to this line of thought because diplomacy really is the antithesis of, of regime change. Well, they see uh, uh, Condi Rice as pretty much a protege of Colin Powell, who they uh, uh, they just uh, couldn't stand as Secretary of of State, and uh, they would prefer to have John Bolton, our ambassador to. Uh, the UN as Secretary of State, uh, fellow neocon. Um, so they're uh, at every chance they can. I think they're going to try to undermine her, and uh, she's pushing to get a, uh, a peace settlement as soon as possible. And I think they would like to delay it as long as possible. By the mere fact, though, that that Iraq has not and is not going, and doesn't seem to be in the future going to be going the way the neocons had planned. Does that not detract from their credibility about regime change anywhere else, particularly in Iran, even if it's as simple as, as wanting a do-over? What would make destabilizing that country and the process of that turn out any differently than, than, than the process in Iraq has? Well, uh, they're on an entirely different plane, I think, than, than most uh, most people. And I don't think this deters them at all. They've had this goal uh, for years, uh, for a decade at least. Uh, 1996, they came up with a clean break plan, which uh, was an outline for how Israel would basically uh, get rid of Iraq and, uh, and Saddam Hussein and move into Syria, Lebanon, and on to Iran. And I think they're trying to carry out this plan. It was written by uh, uh, the person who's now the Middle East of advisor to Dick Cheney and the person who was in charge of uh, the war in Iraq, largely, uh, Doug Fife at the Pentagon, uh, uh, in addition to um, uh, the person who was head of the Defense Policy Board, um, Richard Pearl. So this has been a, a plan that's been in the works for a long time, and I think now is their chance to see a uh, possible uh, possibility for this to come to fruition. 
Is there a, an irony in all this uh, that, that Hezbollah's greatest ally in the region right now might not be Iran, but, but given that rally we saw in Baghdad today, that it might turn out to be the Arab Shiite majority that we have installed in Iraq? Well, that's certainly one irony. Another irony is the fact that uh, it was Ahmed Chalabi, the darling of the neoconservatives, uh, that was used to gin up all the phony information to help us get into this war so that they could put Chalabi in there as president of Iraq. And uh, now it turns out that the FBI is investigating Chalabi as possibly a spy for Iran. So the ultimate irony would be if this was a uh, plot all along by Iran using Chalabi to get the United States to get rid of their worst enemy, Saddam Hussein in, in, in Iraq and uh, make Iraq very uh, uh, convenient for uh, a, a new Iranian government, a, a, a Shiite-dominated government, and that's basically what's happened. Sooner or later, if you deal with faith-based facts, you're going to trip on something. Uh, national security expert James Bamford, great thanks for joining us. Today. My pleasure, Keith. series of the discussions putting the Israel-Lebanon crisis into a larger perspective. We turn now to Joseph Cerencioni from the Center for American Progress, where he's senior vice president for national security and international policy. Watching the progress in the Middle East, Joseph Cerencioni has been very difficult to uh, parse out exactly what's happening between bombs, but you had an interesting quote in Rolling Stone. I'd like to throw it back at you. The neoconservatives are now hoping to use the Israeli-Lebanon conflict as the trigger to launch a U.S. war against Syria, Iran, or both. Granted the lead time for Rolling Stone, you said that a little bit earlier. Is that still holding true for you? Oh, uh, absolutely. It's, it's unbelievable, really. Uh, how little the neoconservatives have learned from the disastrous failures of their policy. It's bad enough that we don't learn from history, but we're not even learning from current events now. Iraq is a strategic disaster. It's, it's it ruined the international reputation of the United States. It's set back our war on terror. It's let the people who actually attacked us on September 11th still remain free five years after that horrific attack. And now what it looks like they're at it again. So if, if you liked what you saw in Iraq, get ready for what these guys want to do in Iran. The weekend the war broke out, when Israel crossed the Lebanese border in, in response to the Hezbollah attacks, the Weekly Standard, this is Bill Crystal's neoconservative magazine, widely read in, in the White House and in, in conservative circles, their cover story was Iran's proxy war. They linked Hezbollah directly to Iran, which of course there are links, but went way beyond that and said that Iran was provoking this, that Iran was deciding to go to war now, and that therefore what we had to do was immediately pivot from the attacks in, in, on the Lebanese-Israeli border 
pivot over to Tehran and wage war against Iran, that the United States should do this. He said, why wait? Iran is a rising challenge. Let's deal with it now. Similarly, Jim Woolsey, former CIA director, now a widely considered a neoconservative, wants to attack uh, Syria. Max Boot, the columnist in the Los Angeles Times and with the Council on Foreign Relations, a strong supporter of getting us into Iraq, says we should be going after Syria and Iran. Well, you're in a position to help us parse through this. I know that most Americans know there's some connection between Iran and what is happening between Israel and Lebanon. You do say there are some connections. What are we hearing claimed by those who would use the information to justify attacking Iran that doesn't stand up to the test? What, what lies are we hearing? What false connections are being made so we can identify them? Well, we, we, have a, we, we have pretty good information that Iran aids Hezbollah financially. Rough estimates are about $60 million a year. Maybe it's $100 million. And that they have a lot of say over what Hezbollah does. But it's a mistake to think of Hezbollah as a puppet of, of Iran's or as a, a wholly owned operation of Iran's, that somehow this is so, sort of another couple of divisions of their armed forces. Hezbollah is a nationalist force. They're Lebanese. They're not Iranian transplants. They grew up in resistance to the first Israeli uh, occupation. Although closely aligned to Iran, they're, they're, they're not a surrogate for Iran. Second, it is the idea that Iran is somehow on the offensive. They are not. Iran is still a relatively uh, backwards, limited military capability country, n- not capable of actually going on in the attack against against the West. And third is the idea that there's some sort of super league of terrorists, that Iran and Syria and Hezbollah and Hamas and al-Qaeda are all in this together. That's the big lie that got us into the war in Iraq, that Saddam Hussein was linked with al-Qaeda. Hamas and Hezbollah are not linked to al-Qaeda. Iran and Syria are not linked to al-Qaeda. The, all these actors have different agendas, different philo- philosophies, different religions, uh, religious orientations, and they're often at odds with each other, not not in some kind of league of super-terrorist he- heroes. We've been hearing for a long time that much of what happened in Iraq and much of what's happened in Washington was predicted through PNAC, the Project for New American Century. Was there a blueprint there to get involved with Iran? You can go back to the 1996 Clean Break Memo, which in by, written by Douglas Fyth and, and Richard Pearl and others, David Wormser, now in the office of the vice president, which called on then um, recently elected Prime Minister Netanyahu to make a clean break with the policies of the past that were, that argued for negotiating with the Palestinians and, la- and trading land for peace. And they said, no, the path to peace in Jerusalem is through Baghdad, Damascus, and Tehran. And they were advocating a, a, a wars with these countries. Netanyahu would have nothing to do with this, but unfortunately for us, uh, our president, George Bush, seemed to buy into this when the, uh, the, the attacks of 9-11 gave him the strategic opening to ha- change U.S. policy in a much more ambitious and uh, aggressive direction. The most cynical among us would say that what's happening between Israel and Lebanon is quite the distraction from the deteriorating situation in Iraq. Coincidence? Well, I wouldn't say it's planned. I don't think the Lebanese... And, wars plan to do that, but they, they certainly are linked because we are so tied down in Iraq, because this has been the focus of our attention for the last three years, we, we have not had the ability to, to attend 
to the really the root cause of the of many of the conflicts in the Middle East, and that's the unresolved Israeli-Palestinian issue. This president, President Bush, intentionally disengaged from this when, when he came in. Unlike his predecessor, Bill Clinton, or his father, uh, George H.W. Bush, he did not believe that the U.S. should be playing a, a role here, trying to manage the peace process. The result has been this spreading chaos and disaster in the Middle East. As, as Dennis Ross says, the former negotiator for, for us in the Middle East, the process is very important. The process can absorb these events, but without a process, these events become a crisis. There's no mistake, no, no coincidence that during the 90s, when the U.S., under both Republican and Democratic leadership, were deeply involved in the Arab uh, Israeli peace process, there was not a hot Arab-Israeli war for the first time since the founding of Israel. A decade went by without an Arab-Israeli war. Unfortunately, we're seeing the policies of this president, this disengagement, this loss of control over events lead to another hot and extremely tragic war. Talking to Joseph Serencioni, Senior Vice President for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress and the author of Deadly Arsenals, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Threats. Well, we talk about learning from both the past and the immediate present, Joe Serencioni. What can you and I speculate in terms of how the neocons might succeed here, whether we will, in fact, get a war? Can we learn from what happened in Iraq that way? I don't think they will succeed. I think the American public has turned dramatically against the war in Iraq. Uh, just this week, we have a new poll out showing that 60% of the American public, the highest number ever, think that the war is a, is a mistake, and, and that over 54% want us to begin withdrawing troops now and get them all out this year. A really sort of radical proposal, but it turns out the majority of Americans believe that. I, I don't believe there's any stomach in the American people for expanding this war. For, for launching a new aggression towards either Iran or, or Syria. And if you look at the op-eds page, almost all the senior, sober adults in this field are urging exactly the opposite. So you have Brent Scowcroft, Henry Kissinger, you know, Chuck Hagel, Lee Hamilton, all kinds of people saying engage with Syria, talk to Iran. Tom Friedman turned against the war in Iraq just last week, saying what we're doing now is babysitting in a civil war. These are real turning points in the, in the American policy elite. I don't believe that the neocons, for all their bluster, for all their basic big lie techniques, are going to be able to do to us again what they did in 2002 and 2003. Joseph Cerenzi, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Joe Serencioni is Senior Vice President for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. Down the drain to put bad thoughts in my head. get a shiver down their spine last week when we talked on the show about Pat Robertson going to Israel. 
Remember this story? Pat Robertson, the televangelist, uh, went to Israel and uh, had a private one-on-one meeting in the middle of the Israeli war in Lebanon. Uh, it has a private one-on-one meeting with the Israeli prime minister. Uh, it's no secret that uh, American Christian right-wing evangelicals have always been acutely interested in Israel. I mean, we know that they see it basically as Jesus's landing pad for the second coming, and that's part of it. And, and you know, their interest in it is one thing, but their actual influence on American foreign policy in the Middle East on the basis of this Jesus rapture landing pad idea, that is an alarming another step. Uh, Max Blumenthal is a fellow at the Nation Institute. He's a contributing writer to the Nation magazine. His latest piece in the Nation is about a group called CUFI, Christians United for Israel. Max Blumenthal joins us on the phone this morning. Max, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, Christians United for Israel. How would you describe this group and how long have they been around? Well, uh, you know, people like Pat Robertson have been traveling to Israel uh, for almost two decades now. To uh, and They've been very close to uh, the elite sectors of um, the Israeli right wing. Um, they sent millions of dollars in aid money. Um, and Israel's cultivated their support despite the fact that people like Pat Robertson have said that, you know, it, Ariel Sharon was, um, put into a coma when, you know, went into a coma as punishment for, uh, quote unquote, dividing God's land. Um, you know, it's sort of, um, Israel's wanted their money and their support. They need a grassroots base in the United States. What's unique about Christians United for Israel, this is the first official uh, Washington-based lobbying organization of the Christian Zionist movement. It was started uh, in February by a uh, preacher named John Hagee, who's based in San Antonio. He commands an 18,000-member megachurch. Um, he's written a number of uh, best-selling pulp prophecy books, you know, explaining how the end times are going to come about in Israel. And he's hired a Washington lobbyist who's the former chief of staff to Arlen Specter, um, who's a connected and seasoned lawyer named David Brog, who also happens to be Jewish. And he's sort of, uh, you know, one of the uh, token uh, Jewish apologists for the Christian right now. And he's very effective. And over the past few months, David Brog has brokered a series of meetings with the White House um, to discuss... Uh, you know, Christians United support for Israel's uh, policies in the Middle East um, and to press the White House to adopt a more confrontational posture towards um, Iran and the Palestinians, and more recently to um, to voice uh, uh, Christians United's belief that there should be no ceasefire in mm. Israel's conflict with Hezbollah. Now, when you say that, it's, you point out that their lobbyist is Jewish. It's like that, the, to explain the political importance of that, uh, you have to get to the idea that, of what people think the Christian Zionists, the right wing Christian, um, what their motives are here. Because as far as I understand it, the biblical interest in promoting um, in, in promoting what they describe as Israel's interest is not actually kind of a, a pro-Jewish or even a very pro-Israeli stance. The reason biblically that they want to support Israel, that they want to support the Israeli military, that they don't want a ceasefire in this Hezbollah conflict, for example, is because they think that roughly like nuclear war in in Israel is going to bring about the end of the world and that's going to be a good thing? Well, yeah, I mean, you could fairly describe the agenda of Christians United for Israel as Armageddon-based. You know, consider some of the statements John Hagee has made, um, the founder of this group, um, in his most recent book, Jerusalem Countdown, you know, in which he cites 
um, Israeli intelligence sources, unnamed Israeli intelligence sources, to claim that Iran is producing nuclear suitcase bombs. Um, he says the only way to defeat the Iranians is uh, with a you know, full-scale nuclear assault. He, this is a direct quote from his book. He says, the coming nuclear showdown with Iran is a certainty. Israel and America must confront Iran's nuclear ability and willingness to destroy Israel with nuclear weapons. For Israel to wait is to risk committing national suicide. But, you know, but if you don't know that that guy is coming at it from an Armageddon-based, theologically-based perspective, he just sounds like, that just sounds like kooky William Crystal talking on right, Fox right. News, right? That doesn't actually sound crazier than the other neocon stuff. What's, what's strange and hard to grasp and I think makes the White House uncomfortable about publicity about these guys is that these guys specifically want a nuclear showdown because they think that brings about the events described in you know, Ezekiel, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, William Crystal, unlike John Hagee, doesn't bring his supporters on trips to, um, the, you know, the hill of Megiddo, um, where he thinks, um, you know, the, there's going to be a battle between, uh, you know, the forces of good and the forces of Satan um, for, you know, during Armageddon. And they think um, the sooner you bring this around, the sooner you bring this about, the better. If you can, if you see Armageddon coming, Christians should help it come. That's, you know, that's, I mean, that's kind of presumptuous to think that if Armageddon is going to happen, there's something that John Hagee can do to help it along. Well, well, I mean, these are these are people who revel in, tra- in, 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 in events that most Israelis consider tragedies. So, like, right now, while we're talking, uh, there's a woman who is, um, you know, extremely popular, a popular radio host uh, somewhere else on the radio dial named Janet Parshall. She's nationally syndicated on over 3,000 stations. And I was listening to her on July 21st when July 21st when uh, Israel and Hezbollah started uh, started their fighting, and she I couldn't believe what she said. They were discussing all of the casualties, all the bombings, and she said, "These are the times we've been waiting for. This is straight out of a Sunday school lesson." You know, she's um, you know an evangelical broadcaster who can still get uh, Dick Cheney on her show when he, when she wants to. And, uh, and, and so it, it, it raises the question, like, do these people really care about Israel? Do you think they agonize over Israeli, ca- um, you know, battle casualties? Do you think they care about all the Israeli soldiers who are dying? Do, they, do you think they care about the thousands of Israelis who spent the last few weeks in bomb shelters? I mean, we know they don't care about Lebanese civilian casualties. We, don't, we know they don't care about the tens of thousands of Lebanese Christians who've been displaced. But do they care about Israel? No, they don't, they don't care. They want to fight this battle to the last Jew. To the last Jew. Uh, Max, you reported in uh, in the nation recently that uh, at their opening kickoff banquet, they had you know they filled up the biggest room in Washington at the Washington Hilton. They uh, got more than three thousand people there, including the Israeli ambassador, uh, Republican Senator Rick Santorum, Republican Senator Sam Brownback, Ken Melman, who's the head of the Republican Party. Uh, what do we know about their um, their actual influence? They're certainly able to attract headlining Republican talent to their events, but what do we know about their efforts to influence? Uh, 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 the White House. Well, uh, that, you know that's a good question, and I think um, if there was a Democratic administration in the White House or a Democratic Congress, their influence would be significantly less. Um, what this group provides, and what Christian Zionism provides um, for the right wing of Israel, um, is an enormous grassroots base in the United States that's uh, linked to the Republican Party. That is the Republican base. Um, so um, if Bush wants to know what his base wants, he, he can just take a look 
at what happened at the uh, kickoff banquet for Christians United for Israel. That's why Ken Melman was there, because um, Ken Melman's determined to peel off uh, Jewish support from the Democratic Party by highlighting Republican support for Israel. Um, and uh, and so they, they play a really important part uh, in uh, influencing the Republican Party. And because Washington's completely dominated by Republicans, I think uh, the influence of Christian Zionism is at its peak right now. Um, and I think that's sort of troubling. Another thing that's troubling to me is uh, despite the Armageddon-based agenda of this movement and this group, uh, Christians United in particular, they're working hand-in-glove with APAC, the uh, sort of Jewish-based uh, Israel lobby, which is rated the second most effective lobby in Washington next to the NRA. Um, and, and I talked to APAC about this. I even tried to talk to them, you know, on background about it. And they just won't talk about it. It's really an uncomfortable subject for them. But um, it, it seems like APAC is, is, is leaning on uh, Christian Zionist groups as uh, their, their sort of grassroots base. Um, in a way, and, and, and it provides, um, a, you know, a lot of good PR for them because they're able to say, you know, we are sort of an ecumenical movement. It's not just... Uh, you know, a Jewish-Israel lobby. That if, it's, um, yeah, that if you have this explicitly Christian evangelical group and also an explicitly Jewish group both supporting the same means, then you take away some of the self-interest criticism that they might uh, they might otherwise feel susceptible to. Yeah, Exactly. And, and, and so I think this needs to be highlighted. I think um, a lot of uh, people who support Israel who also support, uh, you know, a sovereign Palestinian state, which is, um, you know, polls show most American Jews support um, are you know extremely supportive of Israel, but also would like to see a return to the peace process. Mm-hmm. I think they need to understand that um, you know the groups that are lobbying for Israel are sort of out of touch with what they want, and they're working with these extremist groups that uh, you know that 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 are that are completely unacceptable. Um, you know they, they that should be unacceptable. I mean, for instance, Jerry Falwell is on the board of Christians United for Israel. Jerry Falwell has said. Um, on the record, that if the Antichrist comes back, of course he'll be Jewish. I mean, <laughs> these are not friends of the Jews. Right. These are people who are interested in supporting Israeli interests to the extent that they think it might possibly lead to the disruption, the, 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 the nuclear annihilation of that entire portion of the world, which would be great for them and, of course, would annihilate Israel. But that's uh, supposed to be beside the point. Nobody's supposed to notice that that's what happens on the way to the rapture. Well, another, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Max. Go ahead. Another, another interesting uh you know, something interesting that I kind of uncovered when I was researching this is, uh, you know, one of the most famous phrases of this conflict has been uh, Condoleezza's Condoleezza Rice's um, statement that, uh, you know, the violence is the birth pangs of the new Middle East. Yeah. But if you talk to uh, Christian Zionists, um, they clearly understand the phrase birth pangs to be a scriptural citation from Matthew 24, which is a reference to um, the apocalyptic struggle that will bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, if you read Matthew 24, it's not a pretty scenario that uh, Jesus is describing there. Um, so, um, you know, Condoleezza Rice's father was an evangelical pastor, and she understands how to reach out to this movement. And that phrase has been, you know, um, a rallying cry for, for Hezbollah and for um, all the opponents of, uh, of Israel in the Middle East now because you know, it's a way of saying, oh, this is the new Middle East they want to build, one that's built on the rubble of our homes. Right. Um, one that's built, and that one that's built on this evangelical idea that the end of the world is going to be good for us. Condi Rice is a way of just reaching out to the base. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, that's, and that's just one small snapshot of the danger of this, that this movement can do and their potential for, this, for, um, for disaster. Um, Max, and then that, Max we're, out, we're out of time, so I have to run, but I want to uh, thank you for joining us, and thanks for writing uh, this article. We're going to post a link to it on our blog to, to uh, direct our listeners to your research. Thanks a lot. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Renee Montaigne. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Iraq is in the middle of an internal refugee crisis. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, both Sunnis and Shiites, have registered as internal refugees in recent months. They fled their homes after the bombing of a Shiite shrine in February. Some 20,000 registered in the last 10 days of July alone. And to some, that desperate movement of people is proof that an Iraqi civil war is already underway. NPR's Tom Bullock reports from Baghdad. It was a first of its kind in Iraq. A nationally televised program asking a simple question. Has a civil war already begun? On one side, a high-ranking member of the Muslim Scholars Association, an influential Sunni group. On the other, an equally well-known Shiite cleric. This was billed as a debate, and the two men did argue from time to time, but not about their answer. The Shiite put it this way. We are already in the middle of a civil war. The Sunni agreed. To say that the Shiite is killing the Sunni, and the Sunni is killing the Shiite, unfortunately, is true. Yes, regrettably, this is what is happening now. Near the end of the program, the Sunni and Shiite took questions from the audience. No one doubted their conclusion. Most simply asked, what do we do now? For a growing number of Iraqis, the only answer is to flee their homes and neighborhoods and become refugees. In the Qadassiyah neighborhood in southwest Baghdad stands the Umm Atubal Mosque. Its eight-foot-high compound walls once housed a garden. Now they protect a makeshift refugee camp run by the Iraqi Red Crescent. This camp itself is a stark reminder of how high sectarian tensions are in Iraq. Umm Atubal is a Sunni mosque located in a Sunni neighborhood. All those living here are Sunnis, drawn here because of the shelter and the fact they believe the Sunni guards of the mosque will protect them from Shiite death squads. We start working in this camp on the 10th of July and we started having the families on the next day, the 11th. Nazir Subi Chazel heads the Red Crescent's disaster response team in Baghdad. We have 53 tents in this camp. Each tent can house six people. But a quick look around shows this camp is horribly overcrowded, with families of nine or more under each tent. One extended family of 16 huddles together in one of the tents near the compound's back wall. 
all of the residents tell similar stories of being forced to flee sectarian violence, executions by the Shiite death squads of the Mahdi army. Um Abdullah is one of them, a 24-year-old mother who easily looks twice her age. Until a few weeks ago, Um Abdullah and her family lived in the Baghdad neighborhood of Dura. We fled after they burnt my husband's shop. Then they started killing his relatives and killing our neighbors. They broke into the houses and slaughtered them. 53-year-old Aliyah Hussein is another. Three months back, the Mahdi army approached the area. They said that not one Sunni is to be here, and everyone who is must leave the area. Aliyah Hussein starts to cry as she tells her story. Her eyes grow angry as she looks around the camp. Me? What can I do? I can only say, God get my revenge. God get my revenge. And God get my revenge. There are many Shiite refugees demanding the same thing these days. The Shiites have their own camps in Shiite strongholds, many guarded by the same militias Iraqi and U.S. officials say are targeting Sunnis. Most refugee camps were set up after the February bombing of a Shiite shrine in Samarra, an attack which spawned the current wave of sectarian killings, and some say marked the real start of the Iraqi civil war. Mohammed Safu Mohammed is a director general at Iraq's Ministry of Displaced People. His job is to tally the number of those who have fled their homes. Mohammed doesn't believe the civil war has started in Iraq, but he warns the refugee crisis, which continues to grow, just might set it off. What we fear is people who are leaving from mixed Sunni-Shiite neighborhoods. Recently, we have witnessed an attempt to eliminate such neighborhoods, to turn them into closed areas only for Shiites or only for Sunnis. This is what we fear. God forbid. This is a bad thing because it can lead to all-out war. Iraq's Ministry of Displaced Persons estimates more than 182,000 Iraqis have registered as internally displaced persons, and this is hardly the definitive number. I was born in Amaria and have lived my 27 years in Amaria. Ali Jawad is a Shiite. Amaria is a largely Sunni neighborhood and one of the most dangerous in Baghdad. Some time back, a number of men were killed in Amaria, mostly Shiites. Next day, we received a threat telling us that we have to leave our houses in three days. The threat came in the form of a letter, typed on a yellow piece of paper folded neatly inside an envelope with airmail printed in English on the front. Ali's name was handwritten across the envelope. The letter read, You bastards have sold out your religion and people. That is why we are giving you three days to leave your house for good, or else punishment shall be punishment. We have warned you. The threat letter bore the logo of the Mujahideen Shura, an umbrella group for Sunni insurgents. A single AK-47 bullet left inside the envelope to show they were serious. To tell you the truth, the moment we saw the threat, we were amazed, astonished and totally paralyzed. We didn't know what to do. At the same time, within hours, we took the important papers and left. We didn't even take anything with us. In a way, Ali Jawad is lucky. 
He was forced to become a refugee, but rather than going to a Shiite camp, he and his family are staying with cousins and uncles. Ali Jawad also ran a successful business, an internet cafe. He just shut it down. I have closed my internet cafe because I don't know how to think or work. I am looking to leave this country. Ali says Iraqis are being killed for no logical reason. We have no control over our names or our religious sects, he says. Both are decided by our parents at birth. Tom Bullock, NPR News, Baghdad. tonight, an old lesson still unlearned, the fable of the bad apple. 35 years ago yesterday, the Stanford University prison experiment began. Student volunteers randomly chosen to play prisoners, stripped of individuality in name and in dress, or playing guards, given carte blanche short of violence. 35 years ago today, it went horribly wrong. The guards began sadistic abuse of the prisoners. It got so bad with forced nudity and sexual acts that they shut the experiment down after only six days. The moral, under the wrong circumstances, without the right supervision, even healthy, educated American young men who were screened for their stability can go wrong. Which brings us once again to Abu Hirab, the Army reservist who tipped investigators to these photos, thus tipping the first domino of the prison scandal, is speaking publicly for the first time, telling his story in the latest issue of GQ magazine. That man, Sergeant Joe Darby, says he is no angel, that he exceeded proper use of force a couple of times. But when Charles Grainer asked him to make a copy of a CD and Darby saw the pictures on it, he says he had to come forward then because a line had been crossed. And as he puts it, he had a choice between what was right and loyalty to fellow soldiers. He also says one reason is coming forward now is that the full story of Abu Hurayb has not been told until now. Sergeant Joe Darby of the Army Reserve joins us. Thank you for telling your story. Thank you for your time tonight, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, two years ago, and, and here tonight, uh, you've told this story, but let's start with the main point that, uh, that may be new to people. You say that the country does not know the full truth behind Abu Ghraib. Uh, yes. Let's hear the worst of it. Well, the, the country thinks, for the most part, that it's been a conspiracy with the upper echelons of government ordering this to take place, when in reality it wasn't. It was, as you said in the opening, it was a lack of supervision. The soldiers had no supervision at the times when it took place. And they took it upon themselves to elaborate with forms of, of torture. Did you have a sense that this was because it was carte blanche, that it had been these sort of things had been authorized without anybody ever telling you what sort of things those sort of things were? Well, at the prison, the, the only thing we were supposed to do is house the prisoners. Any type of interrogation or anything that could even remotely be, be construed as abuse of any kind was was not in our realm of, of 
normal duties. So the soldiers in that tier took it upon themselves, given the lack of supervision, to just try new things. You told uh, the magazine GQ that the world does not know the real story behind that one infamous photo of Charles Grainer and a, and a dead Iraqi. Tell us what you know, please. Uh, the dead Iraqi was actually an inmate who was brought in that morning by three uh, non-military uh, civilians who brought him into Tier 1 where Grainer was to question him. They, after questioning for about two hours, they came out and said that he was dead and had died of a heart attack, uh, asked for a body bag and ice, packed him in ice, and said, uh, you know, we were never here, and you take care of the body. On, uh, on May 7th, 2004, as far as you knew, only Army investigators knew your identity in all this. Yep. You're sitting at, at lunch at uh, Camp Anaconda with 400 other soldiers, watching the Secretary of Defense, Mr. Rumsfeld, on TV. Let me play again what you and your fellow soldiers heard the secretary say, and then I'd like you to tell us how you reacted. Here's the tape first. There are many who did their duty professionally, and we should mention that as well. First Specialist Joseph Darby, who alerted the appropriate authorities that abuses were occurring. What happened then? Uh, it, it was a moment of sheer shock. It, it wasn't something that was expected. Well, one of the soldiers who was, I was with at, at dinner actually knew that I was involved, and he said that we needed to leave. So we got up and left the dining facility, and within about three hours via, you know, emails and people calling home to see how their families were, everyone in my unit knew that I was responsible for turning in the photos. How did you survive the rest of that tour in Iraq? Actually, the reaction was not what I expected from my unit. Uh, 90 to 95 percent of the unit was very supportive over what I had did. Uh, and turning in the photos. The, and the small minority that, that had a problem with it didn't speak out. Who do you think, in trying to summarize this thing over the course of two years, who, who, is, who is responsible, if you want to use that term? Who is at fault? Is it the soldiers who committed the abuse, supervisors who did not supervise? I know we touched at this at the beginning. Civilian leaders, where would you point and say you didn't do your job? I'd say the blame lies both in the supervisors who one of the supervisors was involved, Ivan Frederick, and in the command for not providing proper supervision over top of them to make sure that they were doing the job and doing it professionally. Extraordinary story. Sergeant Joe Darby, great thanks for your time, great thanks for your honesty, great thanks for your service to this country. your phone calls. I just want to close up this hour today or this this program today with two quick quotes. The first is from that famous warrior, General Douglas MacArthur, a man who led many men into battle and saw thousands, tens, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, I don't know, of men die at his command. 
uh, under his command. And I don't mean that in a, in a depreciating way. This is the fellow who, who helped us win World War II. And this Douglas MacArthur, a man who, unlike George W. Bush, actually served in battle when his nation called, unlike Dick Cheney, actually served when his nation called, unlike Karl Rove, actually served when his nation called. This, the thoughts of a, of a warrior about war. It has been said in effect that I was a warmonger. Nothing could be further from the truth. This was a speech, by the way, on Pearl Harbor Day. Douglas MacArthur. I know war as few other men now living know it, and nothing to me. And nothing to me is more revolting. I have long advocated its complete abolition, as its very destructiveness on both friend and foe has rendered it useless as a means of settling international disputes. That that is General Douglas McCarthy. There is a real warrior. And Bush wants to be a phony warrior. He wants to run and go, we got a war on terror. I'm a war leader, and I'm a wartime president. I'm sorry, Bush. I'm sorry, George. We're not buying it. And then Jack Kennedy, speaking about the greatness of America. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike. Now, I want you, as you're listening to this, to remember that Today, the Bush administration is proposing legislation that would exempt Bush from being prosecuted for war crimes. That the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed. Of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed. So you mourn the greatness of this country in the face of, of the, the smallness of the guys who are leading it right now. It, it, Jack Kennedy continues. By the way, he talks about riding the tiger. He's talking of war. He, this is another man who served in World War II. And to which we are committed today at home and around the world. That the human rights. See, back then, human rights got applause. Let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. United, there is little we cannot do in a host of cooperative ventures. Divided, there is little we can do. And Bush has divided us all. And to remember that in the past, those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. Get that. And Kennedy continues. So 
let us begin anew. Remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. And Bush refuses to talk to Iran. He refuses to talk to North Korea. I mean, do you get the difference? In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. And I would submit to you that 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 hour is now. We are there now. We are here now. We are, th- this country is confronting a great crisis right now that Jack Kennedy was talking about. And, and a, a crisis that, that has been brought about by, by people who want to use war as a political tool. As a political tool. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the reason that Bush ginned up this war in 2002, just before the November elections, was to try to recapture control of the Senate because Jim Jeffords had decided he wasn't going to be a Republican anymore. And it's just, it's, it is such a, it goes beyond a shame. I mean, it is such a crime. We have to take this country back and restore the greatness that was America, that is America. I mean, it still survives in the hearts of of Americans all across this country. voices against war was that of Eugene Debs, the railroad union organizer and founder of the Socialist Party. (laughs) On June 18, 1918, he addressed a mass rally of workers in Ohio, knowing very well that his words could lead, as they did, to his arrest and imprisonment. His sentence of 10 years was upheld by a unanimous Supreme Court judgment. Here is the speech that led to his arrest. Samuel Johnson declared that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. He must have had the Wall Street gentry in mind, or at least their prototypes, for in every age it has been the tyrant, the oppressor, and the exploiter who has wrapped himself in the cloak of patriotism, or religion, or both, to deceive and overawe the people. Every solitary one of these aristocratic conspirators and would-be murderers claims to be an arch-patriot. Every one of them insists that the war is being waged to make the world safe for democracy. (laughs) What humbug, what rot, what false pretense. Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. In the Middle Ages, 
when the feudal lords concluded to enlarge their domains, to increase their power, their prestige, and their wealth, they declared war on one another. But they themselves did not go to war. Any more than the modern feudal lords, the barons of Wall Street, go to war. The feudal barons of the Middle Age, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all the battles. The poor, ignorant serfs had been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons who held them in contempt. And that is war in a nutshell. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. They have always been taught and trained to believe it is your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. The working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war and they alone make peace. Yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. That is their motto, and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. Several months ago, I was listening to an episode of On the Media, and as uh, you know if you if you listen to the the whole show you know they have musical interludes and rarely but sometimes they have segments of music that don't even overlap anything else it's not like an intro or an outro it's just a filler and so this particular day many months ago as i said I was listening, and one of these pieces of filler music came on, and I liked it. You know, it's, it sounded sounded nice. And then when I realized that it didn't overlap with any, you know, talk at all, I thought, well, that's that's perfect. I'll I'll make a note of that. I'll, I'll I should pluck that out and use it. You know, I'm I'm always up for new transition music. Is what I was thinking to myself at the time. And as it turned out, it was so perfect that when used 
as intro music, when, when I plugged it into the slot for the intro music, it made it really easy to line up my first clip because uh, I, I could always set up my first clip to start exactly 30 seconds into the show and it would line up perfectly with the music the way the music was laid out. And that made me think, well, hell, I'm lazy. I don't need to try to figure out a, a, an original way to start the show every day. If I've got a good way, I might as well just stick with it. And so, ever since then, anyone listening to the show has heard that same introductory music every day. Hasn't changed. And, you know, I've, I've never known what it was. It's, there's no lyrics for me to Google to try to figure it out. Um, you know, just guitar, nothing special. And, uh, and you know, people, people started emailing fairly regularly asking what that was. And, you know, boy, that sounds nice. Or, well, you know, I, every time I hear that, I can't get it out of my head. It just plays over and over. And, and I wish I knew what the rest of the song was. And I said to, to all of these people, boy, me too. I wish I knew what it was because, you know, I, I like it. I like it too. But... To be honest, I'm not even sure if it's a song because the entire clip I have really is only 45 seconds long. You know, there's there isn't anything else to it. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that might be it. You know, it might just be filler music. But, as I said to some of these people, what you could do is um, write an email to Brooke Gladstone over at On The Media and ask her. You know, she edits the show's Maybe she knows what it is. So, you know, I said that to a couple people. I said, if you find out what it is, please get back to me. I'd love to know. And no luck. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe she didn't get back to him. Maybe they never wrote. I, You know, who knows? So this whole time, I haven't known what it was. Until recently. Recently, I discovered what the song was. And by I, of course, I mean... Dave Kohler, the executive producer of the Young Turks, and by discovered, of course I mean uh, randomly stumbled upon and recognized. So what happened was during the period that The Best of the Left was nominated for a podcast award, I, you know, was trying to increase traffic to the website and had that, that big banner up, go vote, that whole thing. Didn't work out, but we gave it a valiant effort anyways. But uh, as part of that um, campaign, I contacted the Young Turks and said, can I put, a, put an ad on your site? And so Dave Kohler, the executive producer, wrote back and said, sure, let's have some details. Do you want to record it or should we? And I said, well, I, didn't even, I wasn't even thinking of an on-air ad, but okay. And so they recorded a couple ads, and he he wrote back and said, we, I, I'd like to put some background music for these ads. Don't you use the same I intro music for your show every day? Could you send that? And I said, well, yes, I do. So I did, and that's the music they used for the ad. And then a few weeks later, randomly out of nowhere he writes me an email and says 
you know, I think I discovered what this music is, because I had mentioned to him, yes, I have it, I don't know what it is, I just pulled it out of a show and I have no idea where it came from, but, uh, so so he, he knew that I didn't know what it was, so he uh, just wrote in to say, you know, I was listening to some music this weekend and discovered what it was, you know, it sounded familiar and I looked at what it was and then realized what it was I was listening to. It was the theme music from Best of the Left. So now, I'm very happy to announce to all of you who've been anxiously waiting and writing in that you can now go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com and find the link prominently displayed on the homepage for Elliot Smith's A Fond Farewell. Believe me, if you like what you've heard so far, you will not be disappointed with the rest of the song. It has quickly become one of my favorite songs, and it's, it's very distracting. I, I end up listening to it all day, and I don't get around to my shows the way I'm supposed to. So, there we go. That's the exciting news of the day. Have a good one, everybody. Black and white Cause you took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fond farewell to a friend I couldn't get things right A fond farewell to a friend You said really I just want to dance Good and evil match perfect It's a great Slow